Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, my name is Paul Friedman. I'm chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Mayo Clinic in the Midwest. And I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Soren Fizzler, chair of the Division of Structural Heart Disease. Soren, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for the invitation, Paul. It's always a pleasure to talk about uh, any topics in valvular heart disease or structural heart disease. Well, I always learn so much when we chat. And today I'd like to pick your brain about imaging for prosthetic valves. Obviously a complex topic because of the intrinsic interference that prosthetic valves uh, cause with our imaging uh, modalities. But we've had imaging um, valvular prostheses for a long time. How precise is our imaging? How well can we tell if the valve is working, if there's thrombus or panis or some other issue? So Paul, it's, uh, it's very timely, you know, it is September 6th that we are recording this, uh, this um, podcast and then really we're almost exactly 17 year, 70, 70 years since uh, Charles Hufnagel implanted the first artificial valve back in September 11, 1952. That was that was a really um, masterpiece, you know. It's a ball and container valve. It uh, was actually in a plexiglass container, and it was implanted in the descending thoracic aorta. So it was relieving only aortic regurgitation in the lower part of the body. But it's the first artificial valve, and then you know things starting only from there. So these last seventy years uh, have been. Uh, very satisfying and very frustrating at the same time for the imager. Uh, satisfying because there's a lot of things that we can do for the valves, but very frustrating because prostheses are exceedingly difficult to image, regardless of what imaging modality you're in, uh, they are hard to do. The reason for that is there's such a diversity of, of valves available on the market. So, so uh, knowing each and every type of them, it's nearly impossible. So I, I would tell everybody when, when you image a patient, just use your doctor of your choice, Dr. Google, Dr. Bing, Dr. whatever web um, browser you have and search and then you'll, you'll see and then you'll know what you're supposed to look at. The second problem is related to the valve itself because, you know, they have highly reflective surfaces and that creates lots of artifacts in our patients. So challenging, very, very challenging. Now, we have professional society guidelines for assessment of prosthetic valves. Can you give us um, some sense of how helpful are these and how detailed and granular are they? So uh, both the American and the European societies uh, for ECHO uh, have uh, released uh, documents on how to um, assess valvular uh, prostheses. And these are exceedingly good documents. So, so they are very, very detailed oriented. There's a lot of text to, to, to read about. There's lots of concepts that you need to digest. So it is hard. It is one of the hardest uh, reads you, you can go through. Uh, so that is uh, part of the problem. Um, and being that, that they're so hard to digest line by line, line by line, then people usually resort to the diagrams that are proposed in, in these guidelines. And therefore, uh, at the consumer end, instead of reading a 100-page document, you'll probably glance over some of the concepts and, uh, and just focus on the pictures. And the problem with the pictures and the algorithms proposed is that 
in, in my view, are, are maybe a little uh, oversimplistic and maybe rely, rely too much on, on Doppler indices rather than, than on everything that uh, there is to do with a prosthetic valve. Now, I know that we recently looked at the performance of existing algorithms, and I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But before you dive into that, for the non-valve specialists, for the general cardiologist, for the internist, what would you say are the main takeaway points for, from a report of a heart valve to get an assessment of whether it's working, whether you need to do something? Well, so, so a good report from an imager, whether that be echocardiography or whether that be a CT, should say the first clue is normal or abnormal. This is the dichotomy, really. So, so the, there should be less wording about it looks like this and it looks like that and more wording about this is an abnormal valve. Because once the consumer reads this is an abnormal valve, if they don't know what to deal with the information, they will ask somebody who knows to, you know, whether that be a valve center or, you know, a cardiologist with expertise in valve procedure and so on and so forth. But to me, that, that's a key message, normal or abnormal. Um, and then, then um, everything starts with that, really. You had looked at the performance of existing algorithms. What are the highlights? What, what are the main findings? What, What's working well and where are the shortfalls? So, so for the longest time, I was, uh, I was impressed by the fact that we tend to give less attention to the visual appearance of the valve. So we, we did some research in biprostate thrombosis. There was a lot of interest about that. And reading the reports, you can tell how, how people look and describe and talk about the, the gradients and everything. But there's not that much said about uh, whether the valve looks normal or not. And I thought maybe this is an area that, that is um, ignored or, or uh, less used in, in our assessment. So what we did, we, do, we took about 260 patients who had biprosthetic aortic valve uh, dysfunction. So meaning that in these patients, we knew for a fact, no guess, just for a fact, what exactly was the mechanism of dysfunction, whether because they had surgery and you explanted the valve and you knew what's going on with the valve, or whether you had really advanced images, uh, imaging with 4D CT or TE, or whether we had a formal diagnosis of valve thrombosis with um, increased gradients at baseline and resolution with, uh, with warfarin. So we knew for a fact the mechanism of, of uh, prosthetic dysfunction. And then we took the, the two algorithms from the medical societies. There's a 2009 document from the ASC, and there's a 2015 document from the European Society. We also had an algorithm proposed here at Mayo Clinic by Buzz Miller and Lori Blauer. And when we look at the performance of these algorithms, there were a couple of striking features. First of all, the overall accuracy was less than spectacular. It was around 60%. And the reason for that is, number one, the ability to incorporate regurgitation as a mechanism of high gradients was vastly underestimated. Um, you know? So that was a, one of the biggest uh, flaws in these algorithms. And the second one was there was over diagnosis of patient prosthesis mismatch. A lot of patients have had true obstruction, but they were labeled by going through these uh, diagnostic pathways as patient prosthesis mismatch. So this is um, uh, why, why the performance was not all that great. And then if you look at the algorithms themselves, what is including in those steps, uh, there are all sorts of, uh, of triage points, but many of them rely on 
two major indices of obstruction. One is called acceleration time, and one is called the Doppler velocity index. And these are felt, these were felt to be very, very reliable indices, meaning that if you have a long acceleration time, your valve is obstructing, meaning that if you have a low Doppler velocity index, your valve is obstructing. So very, very powerful indicator of obstruction. And if you look at the population, it is true, but it's not perfect. So if you look at patients who have obstruction, about a third of them will actually have normal indices. And if you look at patients at regurgitation or patient prosthesis mismatch, it was kind of a 50-50. So about half of them had abnormal indices and half of them had normal indices. So that means that the performance of the Doppler indices in isolation is not, um, is not optimal. That's something that we noted. And we try to improve this pathway of thinking in, in how you evaluate the cause of, uh, of uh, high gradient prosthesis by incorporating directly elements of inspection of the valve. So if the valve looks abnormal, it's simple. It's an abnormal valve. Don't call it normal in any way, even if the Doppler indices are perfectly normal, because it isn't. So this is a patient who needs closer uh, evaluation. So that can be tricky, though. You mentioned there's so many different types of valves, and I imagine it requires a great deal of expertise to be able to look at the valve and say, normal, not normal. Is it subjective? Do you think it's something that can be applied in sort of the next iteration of guidelines? It is, it is subjective. It is true. It is subjective. But at the same time, it's not that challenging because there's only so many elements in a valve. So there's some sort of an occluder, whether that be a biological occluder, a cusp, or whether that be a mechanical occluder. And they have only two possibilities. They move normally or they don't. If they move abnormally, if one of the occluders or one of the cusps is not moving normal, that's an abnormal valve. It's simple. Remember, we talked normal, abnormal. It's easy. Yeah, yeah, and, and just start with that. Just start with that. It's very easy. Your comments have really been focused on echocardiography, which has been the historic gold standard, but we recognize a lot of other modalities, and you briefly alluded to 4D CT may, may be useful in the setting. Do you want to comment further? What, what about multimodality imaging? When do we use it? What's its role? Should we use it more? I think I think the the CT technology has dramatically um, altered the the evaluation of aortic uh, prosthesis. So so 4D CT is very powerful in that area, and I, I even if I'm an echocardiographer myself, I frequently rely on on uh, colleagues in radiology to look at the aortic valve prosthesis. It's an elegant technique. It's good. Uh, they know exactly what they are doing, and they provide you good information. They provide you information about valve motion. Yes, no. CT is outstanding to detect calcification. CT is very good to detect thrombus too. Um, it can detect panas, which is sometimes very hard to do on echo. So, so to me, there's uh, there's an important addition. For the other valves, CT, it's a little less uh, used. I, I usually go to transesophageal echo for the mitral and tricuspid prosthesis, just because the temporal resolution and the image quality for these two valves with T, it's usually very, very good. So it's going to give you the answer. But at the end of the day, everything is just converging towards a multimodality approach to, to imaging uh, prosthetic valves. The days of this is only echo, it's only CT are, are gone. This is going to be a blend. There's efforts to do fusion imaging. So there's lots and lots of information that can be gained by, by doing a multimodality uh, imaging approach to, to valvular prosthesis. 
it makes a lot of sense. Each provides a different form of information. Now, obviously, Echo itself has undergone dramatic improvements in the past few years. Is there a role, uh, or maybe I should say, what is the role for 3D echo? Is there a role for intracardiac echo for some valves, and you know, uh, which now also has 3D in some emerging platforms? This is a leading question. You know exactly the answer to that, Paul. But but uh, but I'm going to say for for the audience, of course, uh, we we are delighted that colleagues in the interventional lab uh, have adopted this intracardiac echo technology. I, I really uh, think that without intracardiac echo, some of the procedure will be virtually impossible. Intervention on the tricuspid valve are notoriously challenging to, to, uh, to provide imaging guidance. And I think the ICE uh, use, usual, uh, use of uh, intracardiac echo has really changed uh, our ability to perform interventions. And of course, many other things that have been done with uh, intracardiac echo, just the atrial septal closures, the, um, the closure of the left atrial appendage that uh, you and uh, others um, uh, perform. Uh, so a lot a lot of application for intracardiac echo. So, so I think, again, I, I do not think this is a danger to the echo community. We welcome that because really um, it helps our patient. And many times colleagues in the interventional lab ask us to assist with imaging just because to, you can fine tune the image, find the, the imaging plane. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a gain gain uh, situation. It's everybody has to gain out on that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And then the other area where we see maybe a, a new uses of echo is in point of care ultrasound, a whole separate topic. But what are your thoughts on its potential role in, as an early screen for valvular heart disease? Are you worried that people who don't have enough experience will be using it? Do you think it could be a first pass? Where does it fit in or does it fit in? I'm worried of only one thing. We will need to clone every echocardiographer because we will really detect how prevalent valvular disease is. So I'm not worried at all about uh, people using point-of-care ultrasound. I, I have a point-of-care ultrasound and I use it liberally. Um, I, I'm, I'm less of a stethoscope user and more of a point of care ultrasound user. And I think this is really the future because the technology is so powerful. Furthermore, you know, even if your user is a novice, somebody who is not a cardiologist or, or not, even, not even an internist can be a medical student, uh, they can use point of care ultrasound and provide the image. Now, the AI tools that you and others are developing are going to be able to detect what's happening with the patient's heart with lesser input from uh, the operator. So I think the future is there and it's bright, really. It is remarkable when you think about it. I mean, just in our day-to-day -day experience, if you close your eyes and listen to the world around you versus opening your eyes, it's easier to gain more information just looking at a scene, right? And it, it, it certainly intuitively to the non-imaging expert, the more you can see as ultrasound exposes the heart, the, the better we can understand it. Well, we've, we've ranged from valvular heart disease to POCUS and intracardiac echo, but it's an exciting world that the options for patients with valvular disease and the management and imaging of prosthetic valvular disease is just growing dramatically. Thank you for your comments and insights. I always learn so much when we speak. Dr. Soren Fizzler, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for the invitation, Paul. Hope we can do again uh, some, uh, some other topic. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. 
Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME Podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic Podcast.